Pranakasha live stream. Hi folks, it's Matt from Pranakasha Productions, and today we are talking with Rachel Tillman, founder of the Martian Viking Preservation Project. Hi folks. Hello. <laughs> Great and, to see you. Fun to be here. Oh yeah. And it turns out actually Rachel and I went to the same school in high school. Yeah. We went to sure. the Northwest School. The Northwest School for the Arts, Humanities, and and Environment. Right. Yep. So, but I think you already told me that you didn't play guitar, right? I, I, I play guitar poorly. It's one of those oh. things like I've had one since I was in third grade and I picked it up and I'm like, yeah, I can't do this nearly as well as other people. So I'll mess around with it now and again, but no, I do not play guitar. Yeah, that was like one of the things that everybody at Northwest school, it was like almost a requirement to play the guitar because kids would like hang out in the hallways and they'd be playing yeah you know that was like the thing that everybody did yeah. <laughs> that was fun yeah it's very true those were fun days those were fun days yeah and my guitar is all all happens behind scenes yeah there's my okay i can never do this with the mirror image but that's my favorite guitar but i'm not really that good either it's almost more like a prop these days than an actual instrument yeah well i figured you know <laughs> it, was, it was more fun to, to sing because you don't have to carry anything and that's yeah all you have to carry is a tune well that's true <laughs> that's, that's okay <laughs> i can handle that part and no gear uh, yeah <laughs> no that's gear. true yeah so the funny thing is so like so me and you we ran into each other on facebook a couple of weeks ago right. and then i saw that you were doing this whole martian viking thing and then um the really interesting thing is when I was a kid and I think I was in middle school because I was still living on Bainbridge Island. Um, I might've even been only like in fifth grade or something, but um, my dad encouraged me to write a letter to JPL jet propulsion laboratory, asking them about the Viking Mars mission. And I sent it and then, I waited a month and nothing happened. And then one day I went to the mail and there was this gigantic package that they sent me full of stuff like this deep of yeah. documents all about the Martian project. It was really cool. Um, Viking was really good about that. Their, their press department, um, some of whom I've interviewed and their education outreach were, it was, it was really the formative days of um aerospace doing that kind of outreach it was pretty cool yeah it's neat because yeah, i mean i didn't send them any money and they didn't send me any bill but i'm sure like the postage cost them a lot of money and then printing yeah. all that stuff but i just i went through that i love that i mean i literally used to you know how people when they sit go to the bathroom sit on the toilet and read magazines <laughs> yeah I, I used to sit on the toilet and read my viking documents that's awesome. They were cool. They had pictures in it and it told you yeah. everything about all the different experiments and, and everything. It even also talked about the previous missions. Like uh, I think it was Mariner. Mariner was the, the previous flyby and orbital mission. That's correct. Right. Yeah. And I think Mariner was the one that proved that there wasn't really any canals on Mars. Like uh, what's his face thought. Not man-made. Yeah. Or, or alien made, shall we say? Yeah. But there, there are there are some 
interesting formations by water that were discovered. So that's so different kind of canals, right? Oh, that's true. So, you know, it's so funny. So they took those pictures way back when, mm-hmm. but I don't remember them back then. They were afraid to say that they were created by water. I mean, nowadays everybody yeah. agrees that there was water on Mars, right? Absolutely. But yeah. that was only after like curiosity and much later uh, landers and rovers well, saw it, it right? Saw not the evidence. Exactly. So Viking actually did discover the first water ice on Mars, right? And okay. that was actually um there were two different things. So you've got surface imaging and then you have orbital imaging. The orbital yeah. imaging clearly showed um in the polar caps that there were there was water ice and that's non-melted ice. And so they okay. knew that there was some form of of um we're not going to say moisture because then it's condensated, but um, um, what they did, what they did also learn on Viking was that there with the fluctuating temperatures, they realized they discovered that there was frost forming in the mornings on the footpads. And they could tell that because they had images that were taken throughout the day of exactly the same spot. So they discovered frost on Mars during the Viking mission in the 1970s. Oh, cool. Absolutely. And then they also discovered um, from the Viking orbital images what was likely um, representation of past water, not extant water, but past water. And that's what those, um, well, I call them rivulets, but that's not actually a word. But yeah. when my father said, well, honey, what do you think about this picture? Because he used to show me the pictures of the orbiters when we were little. He just, you know, get some off the computer, you know, that night, bring them home. What do you think? About-? And I'd say, oh, dad, that looks like a rivulet. And that's not a word, but oh. and he's like, what do you mean by that? And I'm like, well, you know, like a little river. <laughs> so and did did he work at JPL, your dad? So JPL is not the center of Viking, actually. Oh, really? And one of the things, no, nope, not at all. Um, Viking, uh, JPL was one of the centers that contributed to Viking, certainly in a big way. They are um, most well known because they have excellent uh, education outreach and, and really it started there during the Viking era. Okay. But the, 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 the Viking project office was actually NASA Langley, which is the first NASA oh. office and center and it used to be NACA before it was NASA. Okay. Um, and, and Langley's an Air Force base, isn't it? Well, Langley is, there's Langley Air Force, but NASA Langley was a research and development center. Okay. So they did a, a lot of the R&D that was used both on the lunar orbiter mission, which preceded Apollo. Right. And actually mapped the entire surface of the moon. Right. for the Apollo landings and for, and then Langley also worked on the Apollo mission. Um, a lot of the team members migrated from one mission to another, obvious for obvious reasons. Right. And because the job, <laughs> well, that, and you have expertise, right? Everything that we've done in aerospace, um, virtually every mission is setting some precedence. Okay. And back during the Viking era um, and Apollo, everything, was being done for the first time. So you were designing things and testing things that didn't exist. There was no such thing as out of the box, right? Which is a term we use all the time now. And every company wants out of the box because it lowers your costs. Well, right. no deal. On Viking and uh, Apollo and Lunar Orbiter, 
um, nothing was out of the box. So if you wanted to test for something, you had to actually design the instrumentation that was then going to test it. You'd right. have to design the interfaces, the hardware interfaces to test that instrumentation. So you're developing all of it. They didn't have sensors that you could just, you know, I'd like, you know, five sensors that test humidity and a couple of wind speed and uh, some that test for, you know, biological. Didn't exist. Yeah. Right? So you built it all from scratch. We built it all from scratch. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so JPL was the NASA, the NASA center that managed and continues to manage DSN, which is Deep Space Network. Okay. And they also were the um, center that was selected by the headquarters to manage the um, orbiter, which makes a ton of sense because JPL was actually um, the design organization for the Mariner missions. And okay. so they really knew how to do the orbital missions incredibly well. And they were also managing deep space network communications. So they had computing, communications, all of and orbiters, you know, down cold. But during the time of Viking, when when all of the centers and other organizations around the country were actually bidding for the contract, the Viking contract, um, JPL was managing DSN that had not only would have been managing the Viking missions uh, communications, and they did do that, but they were also designing and bidding on other missions, such as Helios, which was a uh, another mission that um, they were designing and working, you know, bidding on shuttle. That all of these different missions that they were managing and juggling at the same time. So Viking, uh, the Viking office was given to the lunar orbiter team, who had successfully mapped the entire surface of the moon because they knew how to do that, and they knew they needed to map the surface of Mars before they could land. So right. they really were smart about going to the different organizations that have the core competency in each one of the major elements of the mission. Okay. Now, the primary contractor was Martin Marietta. So you've got NASA hmm. Langley doing the R&D and running the project office. Um, JPL, which was associated with Caltech also and remains in that doing the DSN and the orbiter. And then the contracted um, OEM, if you will, the, the manufacturer was actually primary contractor was Martin Marietta. Oh, and, I never even heard of them. Yeah, wow. well, and <laughs> there's they've been around a long time. There were a lot of people vying for that primary contractor position, including um, uh, uh, Grumman um, uh, Aerospace Corporation did pieces of it. Um, uh, Aerojet Rocketdyne, which used to be... Okay which is an aggregate of a whole bunch of companies. Um, but Rocket Research was, were the, was the company that was selected to do propulsion and the design of the retro rocket engines that the lander would use to land, which are here on my shirt somewhere right there. <laughs> okay. Um, I so, bought a shirt too, by the way. Of course, oh, mine's a little bit. Fabulous. If you, I don't know if you can see this. Oh, nice. Yes, of course. <laughs> And uh, you know, one of the one of the things that's neat about the missions, both Blue Origin and SpaceX, is that the um, the engines that are landing the reusable stages are based on the concept of the throttleable engines that landed the Viking lander autonomously on the surface of Mars. So Viking was the first AI craft ever. Oh, okay, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Because it so had to do it because of the time delay. 
Well, not just yeah. the time delay. Apollo had astronauts on board. Right. So Viking was autonomous. So that right. that entire um, orbit insertion and then multiple days of orbiting until they selected a site because the first site was not actually usable, um, was not safe to land on. Um, and then the EDL, which is the entry, descent and landing. So that entire process was done autonomously and programmed, pre-programmed. And what, and autonomously doesn't mean just you program it and it does what you say, but the AI piece of it was the engines actually were using an, a radar altimeter to measure how close to the surface they were in that last part of the entry, descent and landing to decide exactly when to, you know, to time the landing and to shut off those engines so that you would get a soft landing. So, wow, yeah, pretty, pretty incredible stuff for 1970s. Yeah. And they so it used a parachute too, but then you, you drop Correct. the chute and then use the retro rockets at the end, right? There were three yeah. aspects to it. So the aero shell itself that was actually, um, the lander was encapsulated in, the aero shell was actually an aero braking design. Right. So that slowed the speed down. And right. then um, you had the, um, um, the, the um, separation of the shield, air shield, mm -hmm. and the, the the parachutes were deployed, and those slowed out, slowed it down more. And then that last stage was the throttleable engines using the radar altimeter to measure the how far it was from the planet. So yeah. three basic stages for that. Yeah. Yeah. And so that same technology was actually um, used for the 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 autonomous landing stages for Aero, uh, SpaceX and Blue Origin. In fact, one of the Blue Origin propulsion fellows is a Viking. So they got some real experts on oh, board cool. there. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. Wow. That's really interesting. Pretty fun. So, and then I, I think it flew on a Titan rocket, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. Yep. A, a Titan three. It was basically, <clears throat> it was basically, it originally was supposed to go on a Saturn and it was called the Voyager mission to Mars. Really? I did not know that. Launch on a Saturn. It was two days of science, which was a fraction of what Viking was. Much, much more expensive, less science, and um, it wouldn't have been. Yeah, it wouldn't have been nearly as. Um, it wouldn't have been nearly as much data, frankly, okay. um, as the Viking mission was. But that that was briefly funded, and then the funding was rescinded after about three months, and it went directly into the Viking planning. And that transition was made, you know, as smoothly as anything can be when you're negotiating multi-million dollar contracts. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's really wild. Yeah. And then so I can't remember how long um, Viking was was supposed to last once it landed yeah. on the surface. Was it 90 days or something? Yeah. Or? So the primary mission was 90 days okay. and it was ending at, it was planned to end at conjunction. So when the lander was no longer able to communicate because of the positioning of Mars um, and the radars could no longer communicate right. with it. Conjun conjunction, meaning that Mars conjuncted with the sun, right? Exactly. Right. That's correct. So so it basically flew behind the sun so you couldn't see it. Yeah, there was no way for us to communicate at that point. Yeah. yeah. So conjunction happened. Um, they fired up the, the, well, they didn't, nothing actually turned off. But they continued to ping as they were, you know, coming out of conjunction and they reestablished 
communication with the lander and they continued the mission for six plus years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Well beyond the planned mission, (laughs) 90 days. And now another thing I don't remember is, I don't think it used solar panels. Didn't it use just like nucleothermal? Is that how it worked? Radioactive thermoelectric generators. So RTGs, correct. Yeah. Yeah. And they had, in fact, one of the archives, one of the letters in our archives is a, is a um, permission slip, if you will, from the White House to actually um, use essentially nuclear um, energy right. to power the engines. And that was it, was, it was appropriate, but the kind of nuclear energy that it uses is actually not um, a kind that is as volatile as the kinds that they use in um, actual bomb. So it's not the, weapons grade. No, it's not a, so very different. What I remember from that, what it is, is it's kind of an ingenious thing because I, somehow it's able to just directly convert the heat from the nuclear decay straight into electricity without having to use steam or turbines or anything like that. It's just a straight yeah. conversion. Yeah, absolutely. So the RTGs actually were designed um, there was a core that looks a bit like, mm, well, the blunt end of a, 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 a balloon, right? A okay. very long skinny balloon. And then with fins on the um, coming out from it, and those fins were actually used to direct the heat away from the core. And that energy was then um, uh, gathered and the heat that generated from those was used not just to... to um, turn into energy, but also to heat the core of the landers so that the instrumentation oh. wouldn't freeze up. So oh, it was actually, it, had, it was dual purpose, which was clever. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So they, then for some reason, they decided not to do, maybe it's it, maybe it's because it's just really hard to get that material. Like the, the, the later landers were solar powered, right? Um, some of them were. The rovers, um, I mean, yeah. Yeah, so there's been some um, there've been some nuclear energy in a couple of the landers um, okay. for different purposes, but um, the panels on the rovers um, there there have been solar panels on the rovers as well. Right. Um, there's a lot of politics around using it, um, yeah. but there's also they discovered that solar panels could be used on Mars because of the Viking mission. So they learned a lot about the atmosphere okay. uh, and the properties of the surface from the Viking mission because it, it lived beyond its, its you know, expected life period. So they learned about dust storms on Mars, which was actually one of the things that my father, who was a scientist on the mission, and that's how, of course, I got into it. Okay, yeah. Is that, so that kind of comes full circle. Okay. So my father was um, a scientist on the mission and, and an atmospheric scientist. And so okay. he was one of the people that discovered dust storms on mars and well okay that- here's a question for you like sure. nowadays back then did they fo- did viking photograph any little um dust devils so i know they found those later but i don't i don't remember if they had, they- had saw them back then so not dust devils no uh, okay what they the the facsimile cameras which are pretty much like a fax machine turned on its edge Okay. And they basically scan side to side, if you can imagine. Oh, okay. um, those facsimile cameras, which actually take very high resolution <clears throat> images because it's a lot of data, um, but they're slow and progressive. Um, they were they did not capture that kind of that okay. kind of detail in particular. 
Because it moves, it it slowly scans. So anything right. moving is just going to be a blur. Exactly. Yeah, and, okay. and there are some funny pictures and I'll, I'll send you a couple where when they were testing the cameras, they had a group of people there and, you know, person one over here, when they, the camera, they take a picture over here. And by the time the camera is, you know, moved over here, this person would run around behind the crowd over here and they'd be two or they'd be in the picture two or three times. Uh, <laughs> so, so um, that's yeah. good. Yeah. Um, now I assume you've read the book, the Martian by Andy Absolutely. Weir, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I called Andy before the Martian came out and before it became all, you know, oh, and great. With it. oh yeah. Yeah. I talked to him a little bit about it and, and cause it's always fun to hear how, um, how our artists, right. Our writers, uh, our musicians, our visual artists, how they're inspired by Mars. And certainly Andy was. Okay. So were you like following his blog before the book came out or something, or how did you know about him? Yeah. I, yeah. I was aware of, of him and had contacted him and when he was in the throes of negotiating for the movie deal. Okay. So Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I of course read the book and saw the movie and it was great. great wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was great. Well, but, cause what, the thing that came to mind was uh, the scene where, where he figured out how to communicate with uh, the people back on earth just by um, putting those little signs up in front of the camera when the, when the <laughs> lander would like camera would pan across like that. So it reminded me of that, what you were describing with the, the vertical fax machine. <laughs> yeah, there were, there were a little bit, the images on the next land, the next mission with the Pathfinder mission, which was the next one that happened over 20 years later after Vikings, right. so it was a 20 year span between Viking and the very next mission to the surface of Mars. Those cameras were definitely different. So they didn't, right. they didn't function quite the same way, but yeah, it was clever. There were a few things that were kind of funny um, there after the movie came out, of course, all of my Vikings on our various different threads were, were talking about, Oh, this was not right. And this wasn't accurate. This, you know, and it was, it was a lot of fun, but they, I, I think, the consensus was that people enjoyed it and, and, uh, yeah. and Andy did a lot of research and worked with folks to do so. So, yeah. Well, I remember him saying where he even worked out all the math for like all the orbits of the ships and stuff to make sure that, that, that the timelines that he presented in the story were accurate and things like that. Yeah. And that's, um, it's not, it's pretty standard. So you really have for any standard Mars mission, course this was not people we haven't done that yet just for all of those out there i think we might have sent people we have not sent people yet not um, quite. yeah people do ask that question oh so when did the when did they come back like, no 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 we're not there yet they haven't gone yet um <laughs> but it's a pretty standard two-year window you have to wait a couple of years before um you get to apoasis where you are close enough to mars to make a reasonable commute shall we say right because mars is yeah. orbit is about two two Earth years right before it completes. Well, Earth. when it gets to the closest point, yeah. Yeah. So the trick so is, you always want to like have the Earth and Mars right next to each other when you it, decide to fly in between them. Ideally, ideally. Yeah. And for some things that may not matter, but but you know, for fuel purposes, for entry, um, all of those things matter. Now, if you were going to be doing um, a different kind of entry, you might actually change that, but um, for the entries that they used, um, that, that was ideal. Yeah. Really interesting. So uh, now I think yeah. Russia tried to land a couple of Martian landers too, but they all crashed, right? 
Well, um, so we've got so landing is a is a is a relative term, right? <laughs> um, a soft landing <laughs> is is one way of landing, and that's ideal. That's where you intentionally where you where you hit the planet at the speed where you in, that you intend to, and that's a soft landing and would be considered successful. Um, Russia did actually um, land before Viking. But it oh. did not. It did not. It was not a successful mission because it didn't send data and images back. So it lasted just a matter of seconds. Um, oh, and then it but, but I, I, as a historian, I think it's really important that we give credit where credit's due. So not all of our missions have been successful, right? And that's true of any space-faring nation. Um, yep. And and they did in fact land a hard landing. Um, on Mars just prior to the Viking. So Russia did land on Venus. <clears throat> they did. The quite a feat. Yeah. That uh, is pretty mind blowing too. Yeah. 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 A lot That's of really wild. amazing and successful um, attempts and a lot of lessons learned from even the missions that did not go as planned. So a mission that doesn't go as planned hundred percent is not considered necessarily an unsuccessful mission. Oftentimes there's a lot of data that's collected on the way down. I mean, even collected on the way to impact, if that's what the end result is, um, there's a lot of less things that can be learned from those things. Yeah. Well, I know there's, a, there's the, another approach for some of the landers was instead of using retro rockets, they just like surround themselves with a bunch of air pillows. And then it's just this giant bouncy ball mm -hmm. Hits the, was, hits the ground and bounces, and then once it's done bouncing, then it deflates and then opens up. Yeah, and that was the Pathfinder mission, and that happened in 1996. Yeah. So how do they decide which way, which route to go? Is it, it sort of depend on how big the actual lander is or something like that? or? Um, no, it's, 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 I think it's your fairly, I won't say typical, but it's a negotiation between scientists, engineers, and um, administration, frankly, um, every different kind of EDL, entry, descent, and landing, has a different amount of risks. Okay. Um, they have um, some. Some can perhaps hit the planet at a at a greater speed because they don't have sensitive instrumentation like seismometers. So. Um, Viking had a seismology, a whole seismology unit on each lander, as well as oh, okay. meteorology, biology, X-ray, fluorescent, um, gas chromatograph, um, chemistry. So there were a lot of different ins instruments on the Viking lander, not so with other missions such as Pathfinder. So you could throw a ball harder <laughs> without breaking something, you know, if it's in there. Um, then you can, if you have something more, you know, more fragile package. So, um, you know, I can't tell you exactly what the decisions are, but, but a lot of the things that matter are how fast, what kind of an impact can it withstand? Um, what are the risks involved? How much fuel can we expend? A lot of things like that, because fuel okay. obviously adds to cost. Um, weight adds to cost. Okay. All of those things matter. Cause I know, I remember then later on when, um, they landed in the Gale crater. They made a big deal about how they were going to have this sky crane thing. Yeah. And people said, well, that's awfully risky because <laughs> it's so complicated, Actually, but, but it worked. It was basically, it was similar to Viking. 
So the engines on that were based on the throttleable engines from Viking as well. And then they just lowered the, the craft from there. So that. You know, and the reason they did the sky crane thing was just to prevent from kicking up rocks and dust that might damage the lander, right? Again, I think there's a lot of different, um, and that was a rover by that time we were into uh -huh. our rovers. Um, I'm sure there were a lot more things that I don't know about reasons for, for okay. doing it that way. Um, but I could find out and let you know. Okay. Because I, I do talk to the, the designers of the, of the, um, that craft, you know, periodically. That's cool. We actually invited them to come and speak at the 40th Viking anniversary because, um, you know, their work, the work that they did um, was based on some of the Viking legacy work. And a lot of them were enamored of the mission and, and in order to show, to honor Viking, a great way to do that is to say, here's all the things that we did that were based on the Viking mission. So we had yeah. a lot of folks from later missions come and That's talk neat. about the Viking anniversary. Yeah, it was fun. So, uh, so you were telling me that um, Viking had a whole bunch of different experiments on it. So like in your opinion, what do you think was like the most important experiment? Like the one that gave us the most bang for the buck? you you really can't that you you can't you're starting tabula rasa right we have nothing we know nothing about the surface of mars okay. we don't even know if when we land we're going to sink into dust or hit hard sediment so everything that happened on viking from the act of landing itself to testing the radio altimeter you know radar altimeters and the radios um the high band and the s band uh, low band antennas all of those things, even things that weren't categorized as instruments or as experiments were really important on Viking because they all gave us information for base and baselines for things we didn't know. So the okay. way that radio waves um, behave in an atmosphere and an environment tells you a lot about that atmosphere and environment. So okay. even the communication systems provided science, valuable science. Hmm. So if you ask anybody, um, you know, what the most important thing is on Viking and they, and they tell you one thing or another, it's just, it, you know, it's a bias. We did a lot of exciting things. We discovered dust storms. Um, we mapped both of the moons with the orbiters. So Phobos and Deimos, we mapped right. those as well. So the imaging was important. We did three different unique tests for biologic organics. Mm -hmm. We had chemistry that measured um, the chemical, chemical properties of the surface. We had X-ray fluorescent, which was the elemental properties of the surface. We had seismology, which was looking for quakes on, on uh, Mars. <clears throat> it was, each one of those things was really, really important. And we, they all became critical to the body of knowledge that we used even today to land and to study Mars. So all of the subsequent missions are using data from Viking or some legacy of that um, as a part of that building the greater body of knowledge. Interesting. As well as providing, of course, their own unique learnings. So right. each subsequent mission has also done their own unique things as well. So. so by now, I assume that they've pretty much analyzed all the data from Viking or is there still stuff, are there still studies that are underway that are still digging into everything they got? Oh, well, you know, the funding for Viking ended, um, NASA's funding for Viking ended, and actually the mission would have ended 
except that my father and a number of other scientists and some really interesting young students that were beginning their careers in astrobiology and engineering um, did not want to end of life the mission because the lander was still functional. So they actually started what's called the Viking Fund to raise money to pay to continue the Viking mission after NASA ended it. And as a result of that very first crowdfunding, right? Very first crowdfunding ever happened on Viking. (laughs) A lot of precedents and that's kind of a fun one. Um, Viking was actually able to continue, but it was no longer run by NASA. It was actually handed off to my father who ran that mission, who ran the mission um, from his office at the University of Washington. And he worked, he stayed, of course, JPL was still the deep space network communications office that everything went through. And um, there was a tiny, tiny team of people in different places, everything from um, um, USGS to uh, JPL to NASA Ames, um, University of Washington, Aerospace Corporation. There were people at each of those agencies and in other places, just a a tiny team of people um, that wanted Viking to continue. And so my father and those folks worked together to do that. And that was the Viking, the Viking computing facility was the name of my father's office. (laughs) So. Oh, that's neat. So, and so what, what was his department? Was it was he an astronomer or, or what, what no, was his was official title? Scientist. A what? So he was an atmospheric scientist. Oh, okay. You told me that already. Okay. Yes. And that's not the same thing as a meteorologist, right? It, it is in essence. Oh. It's bigger. It may be pr- bigger. It's a bigger umbrella, if you will. Okay. So, so um, the Mars, you, the weather on Mars certainly was part of it. Because the national and NOAA, the National Oceanic and, and mm-hmm. Atmospheric Association, they had an office down in Sandpoint Naval Base near the UW. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The reason why I know that is because I used to deliver pizzas for Domino's in that area. <laughs> I used <laughs> to awesome. deliver pizzas to those guys the, way back when, when I was in college and at the UW. That's, yeah, so, and there were folks. There were folks from NOAA that were also um, learning about the Viking mission and data and. The Viking data has been used by a number of different agencies okay. um, since Viking, right? And there, but there is still data that can be a- analyzed um, and a lot of different things that it can be prepared to. When you're looking, when you're thinking about science, right? In 1976 through 1982, which was the end of the mission, essentially, November of 82 is when the Viking lander, the last lander was no longer um, able to communicate with us. Okay. So that entire time we were collecting meteorology data um, and we had imaging data. The other instruments were no longer um, necessarily sending data, <clears throat> but there was a huge body of data that very few people were studying. So mm-hmm. if you analyze data and you're comparing it to what you know in 1976, right? What we know in 1982 is different. So you could take that same data now and compare it to what we know about Mars now, and it would still provide you information because comparing data sets is part of an analysis. The the data from Viking still actually holds value because it can be compared to the data today that's being collected and that it's comparing data sets that gives us information. It's not 
solely looking at one data set, right? Okay. Um, now I know a while ago there was a big deal about the methane levels in Martian's atmosphere, but Viking didn't track that, right? No, that was not one of the things that Viking identified. Okay. No, uh, that was new and different. Later on. That yeah. was later on. Yeah. yeah. But Viking was the, the first and still to this day so far, the data is not in entirely. There's um, some instrumentation that's now on Mars that is looking for some biologic elemental um, traits. But as far as looking for biologic organics, uh, Viking is still the only spacecraft that has done exactly that. And Viking had three, hmm. inst three instruments that were specifically looking for um, analyze, uh, looking for metabolic behaviors um, based on samples that were taken from the regolith and put into each one of these different instruments and tested in different ways. Right. The one and I remember was, I think, I think they um, sprayed some, some soil with some nutrients or maybe just water. The labeled then, release instrument, right? Okay. Yeah, they actually gave it food. <laughs> okay. And then did they heat it up a little bit too or? Well, they, they did. So they did a number of different things. So the first thing you do is you take the regolith and you put it into the um, capsule to study it. And then you put some food in it in there and see if there's a change. So you measure a baseline of the um, elements that you're searching for, right? right? And then you put the food in and then you measure it again. And the labeled release actually did have what was called a positive result right. for metabolic life back in 1976. Right. So Remember the design that. parameters for what um, the signature for life would be were actually met by Viking. But because the two other biologic instruments and the GCMS instrument were either appear gave what was interpreted as negative um, results or inconclusive, that array of information was weighted towards inconclusive. And so that was what NASA said. Um, they said that Viking was inconclusive. Um, and hang on one second, because I just realized that the lights are going out. It's like, getting darker. It is getting darker. Hang on one second here. So I can actually fix that. Not with that button, though. I have to find the right button. Yeah, there Whoa. we go. That was bright. Oh, hang on. There we go. <laughs> that uh. So yeah, I always wondered, like, how? Why didn't in the later missions? Why didn't they do more of that? Well, you know what? That's an excellent question. <laughs> I will say that um, uh, those kinds of missions. Um, every, every mission that goes, every not just missions, but every. Well, every mission is led by a team of people that have a set of scientific objectives, okay? Mm -hmm. And engineering objectives. So a set of things that they wanna learn um, and determinations that they want to make. And those change depending upon who the principal investigators are and what their backgrounds are. Okay. So on Viking, every different scientific investigation had its own principal investigator. And those came from biology fields, chemistry, um, um, 
radio sciences, uh, imaging. So they actually had PIs for each of those and that's, and headquarters um, made the selection for all of the different instruments that would actually be funded for that mission based also on budget. So originally there were actually four different biology instruments and that had to be reduced to three at a certain point in the mission design. So um, the, the principal investigators are putting their proposals in, which includes cost and return on investment, i.e., you know, knowledge, new knowledge, <laughs> um, and also, you know, what are different applications that that knowledge can be used for, et cetera. So missions that happened after Viking <coughs> were influenced by different proposals. So okay. headquarters is going to select based on the proposals they get. And those proposals include a lot of things. And number one, of course, is budget. And as time progressed, because of the space shuttle and um, other missions to, you know, other bodies, the Voyager missions also were in um, coming to life in that same time period, um, they had to divvy up the funding differently. So there's a lot of competition for um, scientific investigations. For every successful instrument on a mission, there are hundreds that are rejected. Wow. Yeah. And then, so like when you, when you're campaigning for your, your experiment, I mean, is it like whoever knows how to pester the people the most, or is there like some kind of test process you go through or how do you, how do you market your particular thing that you want on the ship? That's a really good (laughs) question. And I would say that it has probably changed over the years, depending upon administrations. Okay. So we change our administration every four years. However, a mission takes 10 to 20 years to plan, propose, get approved, fund, begin design, test build, test more, reapproval. Every year, those missions in that process have to go back to re-engage and make sure they can still get their funding. Yeah. So that a lot of red tape. (laughs) Yeah. It's intense. It's intense. When those meetings come up every year, when those review meetings come up, right. Everybody's on edge because the funding can get pulled at any given time. Right. And there's only so many slots. There's, there's so many things that influence um, aerospace funding, which include things like, Right. When we go to an active state of. I don't want to say the word, the W word. Right. When we become involved in incursions and wars and whatever, all of those things affect funding. So So do you think I mean, like now now with SpaceX (laughs) and everything where it's looking like they're going to. Well, they're already bringing down the cost of rocket flights big time already, but. Like once they get um, Starship going, where they can hurl huge amount of of weight into space for hardly any money, is that how long <laughs> okay, do you think that it's going to be t- interesting? So how hardly lo- any money? <laughs> well, they're talking about like you know like a hundred hundred times less expensive, like sure. you know once once they don't have to throw away the rocket every time. Yeah. 
and well, then, it's also economies of scale, right? Now that we right. can do things out of the box, because Vikings set the precedent, figured out how to do it and tweak it, things can actually be more out of the box. Right. And nowadays, also, it, things have become much easier to miniaturize, too. So you can pack more stuff on the same thing. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So like, well, like for now, like the one I hear now is there's, they want to go to Europa, you mm-hmm. know. And, sure. Yeah. And also Titan as they mm-hmm. want to go back to Titan, you know, and maybe, maybe flow to flow to lander on a an ethane ocean and yeah, look down and I see mean, if there's any fish those, down there. <laughs> I know, right. You've seen yeah. the drawing, the painting of the, the big sort of, you know, see whatever. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, you know, it's really fun. One of the things that I love about aerospace, I have to say, is that it engages all kinds of minds, right? Mm-hmm. So in order to be successful, you don't just need, and I don't mean to downplay, but you don't just need scientists and engineers, but you need artists who can actually illustrate what this means to the people who fund, because right. I guarantee you the people that are doing the funding most of them are not scientists and engineers. So yeah, they, they kind of glaze over when you start talking too much technical terms. They, They're like, oh. They okay. need a story. <laughs> they need a story and they need relevance and right. applicability to something else that they care about. Right. And so that's a huge part of the success of any mission is how relevant can you make it to the people right. who are, you know, who have hold the purse strings. And um, those are exciting missions. I mean, right. I'm, you know, same thing with, with, you know, going to, oh, Cirrus Rex, right? Um, asteroid missions are really right. exciting. There's a lot of really interesting things going on. Yeah. Even out, you know, outside of Mars, which, you know, I'm partial to Mars, but, but I love the other missions as well. So do you know much about the asteroid missions? Cause I would, I want to ask you a question if you do. Can, no, not really. Cause the thing that blows <laughs> my mind somebody... <laughs> is we keep going to these asteroids mm-hmm. and like every single one that we've gone to is like got gravel and rocks and everything all over the surface of it. And I'm like, well, where's th- I thought, where did these rocks come from? Cause like to make rocks, you have to have, they have to be under an intense pressure. Like the rocks that are made on the earth have been underneath the crust of the earth and they've been squeezed together for millions okay. of years. That's how you make rocks. <laughs> okay. So think, think about it though. So think about this. Asteroids are parts of broken up planets, right? Celestial bodies that okay. have been broken apart and their different parts are flying throughout through the universe. If they're large enough, they can actually enter into orbits, <laughs> right? Okay. Um, and groups of them, you know, have, have been known to do so. But you, you, all of those things are parts of something that was pre-existing to them. And if, oh, if you okay. take, right. So, and, and not only that, as they're traveling through space, if they come in contact with other asteroids or with dust that comes from some sort of exploding celestial body um, right. from, you know, light years away, perhaps, um, right. but if they're traveling long enough and from far enough, they can certainly do that. They're going to collect dust just like right. all the stuff on my shelf behind me. <laughs> yeah. See that I would have expected it to be a just layer, just be 
layers of fine dust on all these asteroids. But when, but everyone have seen there is dust, but then there's all kinds of rocks and gravel right. and stuff. Yeah. That's what really yeah. surprised me. Well, the, you know, they're traveling through space. So there's a certain amount of force that keeps those things in place. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you're, you're also collecting whatever you come in contact with. Yeah. So Over eons and eons. Yeah, and, and I'm speaking about that completely from an, an uninformed position. That's just a very basic, you know, comment. Okay. Um, and I am not, it's not my background. So I'm, if I got so I it guess, wrong, sorry, well, with Dante. But that exclamation, <laughs> then I, I think then that what it, what it would prove is that that definitely the whole asteroid belt at some point must have been actually a planet. Oh, yeah. That got destroyed. Yep. Okay. In, in all likelihood. Or a bigger comment, comet that broke apart upon entry and bits of it burned up in the, you know, during entry in, when they were actually entering the atmosphere and other pieces bounced off the atmosphere and went flying somewhere. Right. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, in order to make it through the atmosphere, you got to hit it at the right angle. So there's a lot of stuff that bounces off the atmosphere all the time. Oh, I see. Yeah. Oh, and then just keeps going. So then it got, it got fried during the partial reentry and then just went back out again. It certainly yeah, can. That's interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that, I mean, so then you, so then you would find an asteroid that's basically just one giant hunk of metal with no gravel on possible. or anything. Yeah. It's certainly okay. possible. Yeah. That, uh, that actually, that brought to mind, there was another question I was going to ask you about is that if you look at Mars, um, there's like a, 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 a whole, almost half the planet seems to be much younger than the other half in, in that it's very smooth and has much less craters on it. And I've heard different theories explaining that. Like, do you have any opinions on what why I, that is? I'm afraid that's a place I'm, I'm not going, I'm not, I don't know enough to go to. I'm okay. great at making, having theories about things I know nothing about though. <laughs> but I will always differentiate between the two. No, I okay. don't. Uh, I don't have real, really, any knowledge about that. But it could be that you know, Earth is rotating, Mars is rotating, everything's rotating as it's going around the sun as well. Right. We know that you know there's the dark side of the moon, right? Things that we don't see. It's possible that the, those that, that there are parts of planets that during their uh, rotations are outward facing more than they are inward facing. And so they may be, um, they may have been hit by more projectiles. Right. Yeah. And, well, and but the thing is that would work if it was in a, a tidally locked with the sun, maybe, but Mars day is, I think, isn't Mars day like 24 hours, very close uh, to it's, Earth yeah, day. It's, it's shorter. Yeah. It's yeah. Really close. Point, 21 point something. I can't remember the precise number of hours. Yeah. The two things that I heard that made the most sense to me was one was that there was some really cataclysmic um, thing that happened, like some giant asteroid hit Mars and oh, basically yeah. turned half we the surface to lava. Or the other one, I guess it could be, it's just, it's, it's just a big ocean. And so when, since it was an ocean, all the craters basically got smoothed out by the water or both right some yeah. some some of the craters might have 
been created when there was water on the surface. Others might have had a different kind of impact when there was water and other craters were definitely created long after water was gone. Yeah. So, and you can, they can tell, you know, they can tell what kind of craters were, you know, roughly age craters by the types of formations that they have. So, uh, but I'm not, I'm not knowledgeable enough to tell you much. <laughs> All right. There's a lot yeah, more all this stuff so interesting. It really is. Yeah. I have to say that um, for a geeky kid back then, um, especially a quote unquote female at that time, um, there wasn't, um, there weren't a lot of things that were open, right? And mm. available back, back then in terms of, of uh, when I was a kid. And so having a father who was involved in these things that didn't really care about gender and probably not sure he even knew what gender I was. He was too busy with his work. <laughs> He's just like, what do you think about this? You know, I don't think he cared, which is great. It was great for me because I, I blossomed. I basically figured I belonged wherever the heck I wanted to go. That's great. Right? And that's an incredible gift. I will mm -hmm. tell you that the Viking mission <laughs> for that reason was hugely influ influential to me and gave me, um, not only the interest, but the belief that, that I could actually go out and, and do this kind of thing. When I founded wow. the mission um, in, you know, I went on to study biology. That was my, the science that I pursued mm -hmm. um, and went into the computing and technology. And I've been inventing stuff for years. Oh, cool. And what I've been doing um, some of it on my own, but mostly, you know, under the auspices of startups in Seattle um, as well as um, Intel hired me when they found out that when they needed a new troublemaker for their labs down here. <laughs> um, but I would, I would have to say that growing up in that kind of an environment was really influential to me in terms of knowing that I could really do whatever I set my mind to doing. That's so neat. I feel very really fortunate in that respect. Hmm. Um, and when I founded the mission at the, the Viking Viking Mars Missions Education and Preservation Project um, back in 2008. Um, not only did I name it much too long a name, which is highly cumbersome. I learned my lesson there. Um, but there were a lot of people that felt that I would not be successful because huh. at that point we were 30 years after Viking and we were moved, we'd moved on to, to rovers now. And a lot of people said that they weren't interested. A lot of <clears throat> folks indicated that that uh, nobody would care, but hmm. we've definitely, we have definitely proved them wrong. <laughs> so that which is, which is fun. I guess. So Boeing was never really involved in the Viking mission, right? Well, Vi Boeing actually competed for the Viking contractor position, the primary okay. contractor position, but they didn't get the, they didn't get the bid. So, yeah. Because yeah. I was going to say that would be cool to have it in the museum of flight, but it, since they didn't weren't part of it, I doubt they'd, well, my that. lander, my <laughs> lander is currently on a temporary loan to the Mar the, the Museum of Flight. Oh, cool. So I actually own the Viking lander, the third lander that was built to go to, to Mars. Um, number one and two were successful. So number three did not have to be fully built out or launched. Okay. So when I, I think it was like around 1979, my dad found his size, his uh, meteorology instrument on the GP, the GSP, GSR, government surplus bliss, whatever. 
because <laughs> um, he used to shop for for um, he used to shop for file cabinets and desks <laughs> on the surplus list. And he for eBay, <laughs> right? Exactly, yeah. but similar to, um, and um, he found his instrument and and he said to me, he's like, look, you know, I found my instrument and guess what else? I found the Viking All Lander the stuff that was well, attached that to time, it. it. It wasn't attached to it, but oh. they were in pieces. They were all in pieces. Um, the, oh, the lander had been taken. The lander had been um, somewhat partially um, deconstructed and 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 was actually going to be considered for being the first rover on Mars. They were going so to rebuild were, it. They were going to turn it into a rover, repurpose it into like a, a six rover. Six million dollar man. <laughs> right. they, they didn't actually get the funding back then. So okay. it was on the surplus list. And I said, I want that dad. By this time I was at a school called Seattle country day school. And my dad was, you know, he's like, what are you going to do with that? And I said, well, you know, we're going to teach our, the kids at my school about robotics and, and Mars and science and engineering and all this. And he's like, what are you going to build stuff out of? And I'm like, Legos. <laughs> so we actually started in 1979 with my father and a teacher at Seattle Country Day, who's still there, Meredith Olson, the first Lego robotics. Cool. Back in 1979. So did they use that third lander? Like, I know they like to have a full scale lander back on Earth as a mock up so that every time something right. goes wrong, they can go tinker with it and figure out how to fix it. Right. Did they use so, it for that purpose? No, they didn't. So the 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 computing test model and the science test model still exist, but those are test landers and they're different than as built, which is the flight lander. So the one I own is the only one that's flight qualified. The okay. other two are the STL and the CTL. And there are two other mock-ups that were used um, that are on display in other places. Um, one is in the Smithsonian Institute. Okay. And one is down in uh, the science, uh, um, California Science Center. And um, those were used for different things. So one was a science uh, instrument test interface and the other one was used for computing testing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You're gonna have in to fact, send me a selfie of you and your lander. <laughs> I'm assuming you got some of those. <laughs> nope. I have pictures oh. of my lander, but I don't, I avoid the cameras, generally speaking. <laughs> uh, too bad. Cause that would be fun I have a to picture of there. my father and my, I have a picture of my father and my child in front of the one. <laughs> oh, that could be good. Yeah. They're um, much better. <laughs> so uh, is your dad still alive? Um, yeah, he is. Oh, great. He is, he is 89 now. Wow. That's yeah. cool. It is pretty cool. And does he, does he still, um, is he still interested in all that kind of stuff or? Um, interested, yes, but not outward facing anymore. Just, okay. you know, age changes. Okay. So, so like, can you guys, can you guys still reminisce about all the stuff you did? Does he remember? Yeah. Oh, he remembers. Stuff? He remembers. It's interesting what people remember when they stop from. When, when you start losing your memory, it's your memory. It's always interesting what you remember and what you don't. Um, right. He could tell you serial numbers off different parts of the Vikings. <laughs> actually, yeah. actually, he could tell you data points and stuff like that. Um, but there's other things that, you know, have drifted. Right. You know, so. But then they can't remember, you know, if they brushed their teeth this morning or not. 
Yeah. You know, medicines, all that, all that good stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. But we still talk about it, of course. Yeah. Yeah. My mom's still alive. She's almost 84 and oh, wow. she's not a scientist. She's a musician. So, Ooh. so we talk music stuff. Awesome. Yeah. Well, see, now there's some genealogy right there. So she is the reason why you have a guitar right in your picture, right? Yeah. So actually my main instrument is violin. She's a, she that, violin. That. Yeah. 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 And then of course I learned a little bit of guitar because from going to Northwest school and then <laughs> you, you can barely see it, but over here, is a cello oh seriously oh yeah i can see the top of it okay that's awesome yeah i love I the cello yeah i've been oh, playing i actually practice cello more than i practice violin now oh so, the cello is a fantastic yeah, instrument it is it's, it's wonderful yeah. i yeah yeah you know i always think of the rite of spring right mm -hmm. and when i Kavinsky. You know, i think about stringed instruments and and um yeah uh, yeah. 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 That's, that's pretty cool. And yeah. and also there's a, there's a woman who brings her cello to the open mics that I do. Oh, and cool. She'll sit there and I, I, I'm a poet. So oh. I do my work. I, I do my work and she'll sometimes come up and she'll be behind there. Going, doom, 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 oh, doom, cool. Yeah. Very beatnik. <laughs> so that's a lot of fun. So did you ever write any poems about the like Viking lander? <laughs> None that I would share. Okay. Um, no, I've written a, I've written a few things, not about Viking specifically. Okay. Um, actually, that's not true. Um, I, I started a few pieces about Viking, but nothing that I've, I've ever done anything with or shown anything. But I, but I did write a sonnet about physics and philosophy at one point, just because it seemed amusing to do so at the time, like take okay. this really constricted form of the iambic pentameter <laughs> and... And then talk about these two sort of complementary yet opposing forces of philosophy and physics. So, I've, yeah, you know, that was just an exercise in fun. Interesting. Well, surprisingly, I was just now we're getting way off the subject. But yeah. when you were talking about funding for um, mm -hmm. for the various experiments and things, I was just watching a YouTube video of a bunch of physicists, well-known physicists, each one of uh -huh. them is like the head of their department of their university. And they're all on stage talking about their view of reality, but they were also talking about, you know, the, the large Hadron Collider. Oh, the Collider. Yeah. Yeah. In CERN <laughs> and how it costs billions of dollars. And I'm thinking, how in the world did they raise the money to build this giant thing just so they might discover this one particle so that that way they can fill in a slot in their chart about the standard model. And hopefully it will fill in a few more blanks, you know, and that's you know, what you get. Then you can say, Oh, there are, this particle does exist. Therefore now we have a greater, now maybe our string theory might work after all. So that was well, worth $10 billion. <laughs> it, it's funny because the reasons why we do things can seem elusive to those of us outside of that decision-making process at times, particularly if the impetus of where we're going, if our path isn't necessarily consistent with where someone else's is. But, but if you think about it, every bit of information that you add to the body of knowledge is, is going to contribute to it in some way. 
Viking is a great example. There are a lot of people that say, why are we doing Mars missions? But um, Viking CCDs that are used in cameras were developed for Viking. So our cell um, phones wouldn't be able to be movie cameras if it weren't those for Viking. Little, tiny, yeah, those little tiny units that actually, you know, make um, uh, visual computing, if you will, yeah. um, possible in a small format. Um, clean rooms for um, for surgeries. Really, that concept came from Viking. There was oh. um, there was Viking was sterilized so that they could search for life without contaminating it simultaneously. Right. So everything was heat sterilized and then encapsulated in a sterile room, and all of the instrumentation was developed in sterile rooms. <coughs> um, at that same time, in Denver, Colorado. Um, either some, I don't remember, and I've got the interview somewhere, but, um, one of the people that was working at, at Martin Marietta was actually interviewing or speaking to a family member or somebody who was having surgery. And they said, so what do you do to keep things clean in the hospital? And they're like, well, we just, you know, dip it in alcohol. And they're like, well, Mop you know, what we do with, over here with, for Viking uh, is we have, an entire, <laughs> we have a clean room over here and we heat sterilize things. And then we do this. And they were like, whoa, that's pretty interesting. And how do you do that? Well, they did a, a test uh, room at the children's hospital there in Denver, Colorado, um, created a clean room and did surgeries in it. And they had a reduction of almost 70% infections post-surgery. Oh, wow. I mean, it, which obviously makes sense, right? So there's a ton of secondary and tertiary applications for all of the things that we study in aerospace. Yeah. And so when people say, why are we spending the money doing that when we've got all these problems at home? Well, Part of the reason we solve these problems at home is by studying these seemingly esoteric things that then have multiple applications, right? Oh, Velcro. Yep, there you go. Yep. <laughs> yep. Would we be Velcro. without Velcro? We'd be doomed. And, <laughs> and think about and fire retardant fabrics. Those were developed for aerospace as well for the entry process. Oh, yeah, okay. Right, that makes sense. Um, you've got light lightweight materials that were developed for aerospace. And now we use them for everything from, you know, really cool pencils that you buy <laughs> from designer people to um, bicycles, right? Yep. And all true. of the things that we do have multiple different purposes. Um, and so. So that's an important the, selling point for the space program is the. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I don't think that the public actually knows enough about that, to be honest. I think that we have not done a good enough job communicating the value add of all of the research and development that's done for aerospace. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, of I course, mean, the military, if there's a military application <laughs> for it, then they're like, they're all for it. Then they're like, oh, <laughs> yeah. if that can create a new, better weapon for us, then yeah, let's pour yeah. billions well, of dollars into it. And, and. <laughs> Sadly, that's true. <laughs> but but what's what's nice is aerospace actually turned the military into something more than the military. So everything was military until aerospace came into it, and that's when it turned into NASA from NACA. Yeah, they stopped doing just so. The Littleton um, in Littleton, Colorado, where the Martin Marietta plant was built specifically for Viking. So. One of the reasons that Martin Marietta got a contract was because they said, look, we will actually build an entire plant that's dedicated to developing 
the Viking lander and its instrumentation and testing. And we will focus our funding on that. Whereas prior to that, Martin Marietta was developing missiles. Right? Oh, okay. So Viking turned Martin Marietta into an aerospace corporation instead okay. of just a military corporation. There we go. That entire economy in that area was built up around Viking and all of the different infrastructure needed to serve those different um, engineering and science and economic you know, base to provide all the bits and pieces that went into that R&D. So, okay. so economies are literally built Different regional economies are built on aerospace, and Littleton, Colorado, is certainly one of them. Interesting. So it, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, that's one of the ways that people got plants built in different regions was because they went to their senators and said, "Look, if you support this mission, we build a plant here. We're going to be building an economic base, a workforce, jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah." yeah. Well, so what do we have in store for Mars? I guess the big thing we have now is trying to put astronauts on Mars. Yeah. Though I think what's going to happen now, before we have astronauts, there's going to be robots, actual humanoid looking robots. You think now so? That, well, now Tesla's decided that they want to they, they start creating robots besides just cars. Mm -hmm. So obviously so, SpaceX is going to take advantage of that, yeah. you know, and send some, send some of those robots. If they got, if they actually make robots that they're kind of humanoid and can walk around in the factory and help build cars then SpaceX is going to use some of those and in, in the initial mission, unmanned missions to Mars. But we're not the uh, only ones going there now. I mean, last year yeah. alone, we had the UAE and China both landed. Oh yeah, and India did too, right? Did uh, they... India, India also had an orbital mission. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. but the lander failed. Yeah. Well. Yeah. yeah. There's different. Yeah, different. Different pieces of the mission were, you know, less right. successful. I like. I don't like to use the word failure because failure is something. Failure is a set of circumstances that result from um, an immense amount of work. Okay. And that you always learn from. So right. or, or underwent kaboom. To put it another way. It went splat. Necessary. Failure is a good <laughs> thing. We still learn from it. Well, of course, again, if we go back to SpaceX, that, that's how they develop this stuff. They're like, well, we're gonna blow up about 10 rockets before we finally get it right. Yeah, absolutely. And then they're gonna absolutely. publish it to the world and show all these pictures of all their rockets blowing up, you know, <laughs> and crash landing and until finally so one of them actually one of them works and they're like, and then after that, every single one of them works. Well, and the, um, the, beauty, the beauty of that is that when you bring the commercial sector into it, so both, you know, not just, so SpaceX and Blue Origin and many, many others. Right. Um, <clears throat> one of the beautiful things is that we, the world gets to see things through a different lens. And it's not this, you know, lockdown lens of what does the government want to communicate at any given time, but it's, hey, we're trying this. Yeah. And, it normalizes um, that entire process of, of designing a set of ideal circumstances and then maybe meeting you know, 
six or eight or nine out of the 10 objectives is still a good thing. And right. so, you know, SpaceX and, and, and Blue Origin and others have made that, um, have, have really helped us to turn the corner on knowing that space exploration is not perfect. And there are things that are not going to work, but that it's not a failure. It's just a step in a trajectory, if you will, right. <laughs> um, to get, get to where you want to go. And I think that's brilliant. I think we need to learn that. Yeah. You know, and also kids need to see things not work right the first time so that they know it's okay not to be perfect. Right. Because we yeah. have, we as a nation have really done a disservice to children in the way that we have trained them as, in this perfunctory manner to create kind of a homogenous environment of expectations. And, and what we're always aspiring to is perfection as opposed to um, uniqueness or lessons learned from doing things. And um, the commercial sector has really given that the ability to be curious and to try things and to take risks back to youth. And I think that's incredibly important. Oh, that's good. So wow. but that's just my opinion. <laughs> that's neat. Well, shall we wrap it up? I wish we could wrap it up with the poem. I don't suppose you have one that you can, you'd be willing to share with us off the um, cuff or. <laughs> it depends on what kind of a poem. <laughs> what, I, I write a lot of political poetry. <laughs> so whatever aerospace that's okay well i we learned that there is a lot of politics in aerospace oh my goodness is there not there really (laughs) is you're right about that gosh well if you're serious i mean i can probably find something for you sure oh my goodness i could even i could be the beat nick cello and play do a little background music while you do it that would be cool. Okay. Um, well, all right. Just a second. Okay. Uh, hang on. Depends on what kind of a poem it is, though. Here, let me see. Let me see what have I got here. Okay. Oh, my goodness. I don't have a beatnik hat that I can put on, though. Well, I probably do, but it'll take me too long. A lot of good stuff there. I got to find one that's not too long. I write things that are long sometimes. Hey, you don't want to hear those. Ooh, that one's really political. <laughs> Let's see. Okay, you want to go full, you want to go all in? Yeah, let's go all in. So you got to you tell me what kind of a mood, what kind of a backdrop should I paint with my... Okay, hang on one second. I'm going to... My plucking. Okay, we're going to go all in. I'm going to read you something I wrote in 2017. Okay. Even though it sounds like I wrote it more recently. Okay. Um, it's called Only in America. Okay, wait. Um, It's pretty fast paced, so it's... They're they're <laughs> okay. That's funny. Okay. How about I'll, I'll start and you can you can uh, join in at whatever pace okay. you, you feel like. Okay, I just gave an intro. Navigating the mind storm 
Emotions ride side saddle in the battle to understand the riddle of where we stand. As a nation of individuals playing follow the leader, less is not more. In fact, it is an open door inviting the fighting and intrigue as they moonlight as businessmen. When they're supposed to be presidents and champions of the masses they implore to buy their line wholesale at the door, while others stand in line for food, shelter, and clothing have been denied because their ancestors decided not to hide anymore and instead took pride in the deep, long history he would rewrite, just as he is trying to rewrite the Constitution that laid out the freedom for the masses. Not the freedom or crassness that spews from his orifice like the sickness that snatches. Yeah, it is. Broken mouths and obscured faces covered in masks because they were haters. Determined that deign to climb, claim the title human, are anything but that. Their plague is spreading, inoculated by power. It's been heading in that direction of chaos since the election, if you can call it that. A movement, perhaps, of a hypnotic lunatic with no self-censorship and delusions of blame for anyone but the same people he gave fame so they could build up his name. Until they said something he considered blaspheme against himself. Because he claims he is the victim while a trail of souls from all over the globe cry out, too late. They already gave him what he came for. And now he climbs to the top of the mountain of misery he created and calls down, I will save you. And they believe it because they are too ashamed to admit they thought they could gain by playing his game, but no more. How many will it take of best friends, appointed partners and namesakes scattered about like ashes in his wake to realize what is Everything, as we know it, is his to take. If we don't stand up and open our mouths and shut our pocketbooks, our values, our children, our mother, our earth, it is bigger than God and country because he has already taken them in vain in every language and culture, dismantled, dissected and discarded foundation and slowly methodically replaced it with nuanced redacted versions redirecting influence and power from the people to the office which he holds like and with a vice the quiet beguiling protagonist to the enemy waiting for the opportunity to paint a new hue on red, white, and blue. As such, as he erased the blame from himself, placing it all on the Muslim, Black, or Jew, depending on which nation he's courting and which is daily feud. Bravo. There you go. <laughs> yeah. You could say that some of my pieces are more rants because I get pissed off 
Oh, yeah. You know, know, I should follow you on Twitter. Are you on Twitter? I am not. I have not put my poetry out there publicly until. Oh, really? mm -mm. No, I, I read. I've read all over the place for years, but I only recently started a Patreon site. Ah. So I do have that. There's there. I occasionally put pieces out, you know, on the front end of it that are okay. available. Well, we'll but, put, we can put a link to your Patreon site in the <laughs> video. Hmm. And then, but there's no place where we can find your poetry, huh? It's not, not really. published online yet. No, I'm not. Oh. Um, I don't know. I just, the stuff that I do, my poetry is so personal uh-huh. that I really haven't, um, I haven't put it out there for global consumption, if you will. Okay. Um, yeah. I don't know. I'm just sort of beginning after prodding from people to, to begin to sort of stick my toe out there in the world. Well, in that we way. just stuck your toe out in a big way. I know we just did. That was definitely <laughs> a first for me. That was, I was not planning on doing that. <laughs> All right. Well, and I, I, I don't always, I don't generally mix my Viking, my, my nonprofit stuff with my personal stuff because, you know, um, I'm going to be very honest that the audiences that, that are interested in one probably would not like my poetry. <laughs> right. So you just have two different compartments in your brain for I one do. for poetry and one for, for scientific stuff. Yeah, kind of, you know, at the end of the day though, I think that um, bridging is really w- what happens. It's you, you right. don't bridge with poetry like mine, just FYI, like that's not bridging material. Right. And I think that that's probably <laughs> probably why I don't mix the two. Um, but I do firmly believe that, that being open and um, creating dialogue is, is equally as important as <laughs> the, the, the verbal effluence that I create, you know, which is right. comes from my own um, just my, you know, I've always had a, a really, a really strong sense of um, reaction acting to injustices. Okay. You know? um, so, um, but, but you don't fix things by being reactive. You fix, fix things by being constructive. Right. Um, you know? Yeah. I do both. Well, it's surprisingly. So, okay. I'm supposed to be wrapping this up and yet I start a new topic right now. Um, Cause on one hand we have like the, astronauts who go to space and they're all there's always been a real strong tie between the military and like nasa and like all the astronauts were military test pilots and everything in the early days no that's right no no not so oh Mm -hmm. okay but many of them yeah many of them for sure we perceived that they were even though they weren't okay but anyways (laughs) so you've got those kind of hard-nosed people that you wouldn't consider like your liberal hippie types right you know (laughs) right but then you have this thing where they go up in space and they look down and they see the planet earth and they're like whoa you know like we all live on this fragile little planet and it's so obvious and they come back and like so many of them come back transformed and then they become really politically active for all these things you know but saving the earth and all these things that are considered kind of left left wing type of stuff, you know? So it's, you know, it's funny it, what happens. It, 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 you know, I, I'm going to say though, I know a lot of astronauts 
Okay. And I'm going to say they're not really, they're not like that. They're not generally hardcore anything. They are, what they are is, um, sorry, the light, I just realized the light keeps going off, which I'm quite used to at home when there's nothing happening around here, but (laughs) it's kind of weird when, um, so they're, they're mission driven, which means those that came from the military are, you, you know, accustomed to following a strong sense of order mm-hmm. and accomplishing tasks and meeting their requirements. Right. And, and so are engineers similarly, right. Mm-hmm. Engineers are also driven to meeting objectives and, and um, creating ways of doing things. Um, and, but again, focused on objectives and that's true of astronauts too. And it has to be that way because if you don't, have things somewhat finite on the delivery end, you generally can't meet your mission requirements within the parameters that you're given. So the, so the individuals that execute those, the, the folks that are chosen as astronauts are very good at executing to their objectives. Um, okay. But I, I think there's, I don't, I, I do not think that they are closed-minded or, um, or right-wing or any of that. I really don't. I, and in fact, politics is not even generally a part of, of their world um, because what they're doing is meeting, you know, they're meeting mission requirements, which has nothing to do with politics. Politics has nothing to do with aerospace, to be quite frank. Um, funding, the funding does. <laughs> the funding does. You the money to but, do it, yeah. But even that's not politics, it's economics. Okay. What has happened, so I... I would say that we had less division in politics throughout our entire, you know, aerospace, um, um, whatever history. It is not political as much as it is economic. And what we have, what we do today is we fail at recognizing that problems that we put forth as political arguments are not political arguments. In fact, they are scientific or engineering or economic workforce development, but we make them political. We turn things political that have no business being political. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we really do. Yeah. And and because the sad thing is that both parties realize that if they want votes and they want attention, they always have to just fan the flames and pour gas on it, whatever the issue is. And if they can get their side riled up over it, then that's how they get what they want is attention and votes. I so. I think that I think that one of the biggest problems we have is education and Mm. that we are, we have changed our educational system so that we aren't offering critical thinking tasks at a young enough age now and Mm. decision-making at a young enough age for people to determine, um, to really to, to learn how and to give real life experiences that allow them to see how checks and balances work. Mm-hmm. And everything in aerospace is, is checks and balances, including the funding, right? You have to fly a spacecraft that weighs no more than X, Y, Z um, in a window of, you know, have to launch within this tiny window and you have to have all of your instrumentation working by this date in order to get it encapsulated, in order to get it right. So it's all checks and balances. But what has happened is accountability there was a point at which faster, better, cheaper happened. Um, 
And that was back in the 80s. Golden was the NASA guy at that, at that time. And that really forced people to pit um, uh, each other to compete in a very different way. Hmm. And um, and I would say that we've done exactly that, not just in aerospace, but in many, many aspects of society, faster, better, cheaper, right? That applies to cars. It applies to uh even to to aerospace, it applies to you know the things that we produce and manufacture, which is why we shipped a lot of stuff off, you yeah. know, off out of state, out of country, out of country, yeah, out of country. And now we're now we're reaping what we sowed, shall we say, by realizing that when you do that, you then don't have the control over quality, right? And then yeah. you try to bring it back, and the quality, you know, the cost goes up, and all of these things are interdependencies that um, became, in my opinion, <laughs> I have plenty of those, um, <laughs> that, that really became problematic when we tried to, to do the, that kind of a, a thing, faster, better, cheaper. Same thing right. with education, right? We're graduating kids. We've been graduating kids that have no business graduating because we're not necessarily teaching them we're just right moving them through a system right. that may or may not may or may not even really serve them appropriately yeah well okay whole other subject but i mean so it becomes like you know got to make sure they get the certain test scores so that then mm-hmm. they get the funding because they got That's right and their kids have to hit certain scores on the test for the school system to get their federal funding or whatever it is yeah. you know so, and the yeah. metrics the metrics yeah. Metrics are all wrong too, because we're teaching kids to test, but we literally are not teaching kids to, we're not valuing, valuing people for who they are innately. And we're devaluing many, many gifted people that don't yeah. follow, fall within this sort of homogenous yeah, uh, structure that we have created. I mean, I, what I tell kids when, when I go into a classroom, whether it's kindergarten or, you know, high school, se- senior year, I say, who loves space? And they all raise their hands. And then I said, which, you know, which of you do you think is going to work in space? And in, you know, from the middle years up, they kind of understand this. The little, the little bitties don't, <clears throat> we haven't jaded them yet, <laughs> but um, the kids will almost all of them will drop their hands and I'll say, okay, so, you know, you, your hand's still up. What are you going to be? Well, I'm going to be an engineer because I'm really good at math and blah, blah, blah. And the other person, oh, I'm going to be a scientist because I really like that. And I'm like, that's great. Scientists, those are great, you know, and these are the top kids in their class. And I'm like, okay, so does anybody like to draw? Some hands go up. Does anyone like to write? Some more hands go up. Who's the bossy kid in class? Usually there's two or three kids in the class and everybody points to these kids. Great. And I said, you know, we need by a the leader. Time I ask, <laughs> my goal is by the time that I finish this inquiry, all the kids' hands that want to work in aerospace are back up because we need every single one of them. And I tell them specifically, I said, okay, if we want to get to Mars, I need somebody that's OCD. I need someone on the spectrum. I need a few ADHD folks. And I need a couple of folks that are called normal, neuronormal, right? We need this entire array because we need people who think differently, who don't say, who don't fit into a cookie cutter. We need all those people. And I guarantee you those people were on Viking and I can name a few um, that are, that are 
diagnosed, if you will, and they are brilliant and we need different thinkers, right? Yeah. We need that. And we have been pushing aside those kinds of gifts and individuals and devaluing people for what, for who they are naturally. And we have to stop doing yeah. that. We really have to stop doing that because yeah. everything about our country and our global citizenship will fail if we do that. You look at some countries that have done that historically and the suicide rates are really high when kids don't place in, you know, don't get into colleges in some countries and I'm not gonna get into that um, because they're so academically driven, the suicide rates are really high. Now ours are up there now too for other reasons, but um, we need to really learn how to see the value in each person, in each child. Everybody's got a talent. Everybody's got a talent. So the point is you don't want to just flatten everybody out. You want to find the talent and then learn how to enhance that talent. You know, what they were born for. Yeah. Yeah. Just direct it, you know? Yeah. Point it in a certain direction or in a few directions and see what sticks. And that's the other thing is that I have degrees. My degree is in biology, art, and Japanese. You don't have to study one thing. Right. There's no rules saying you can only study one thing. Yeah. I would have failed that class. (laughs) Well, you shouldn't have told me that you you have a degree in Japanese because now, uh, what's it called? What's the Japanese poem called? Everybody knows this. Dang it. What's it called? (laughs) I don't know. It's the one with a certain number of syllables. Oh, haiku. Haiku. Yeah. So I've written some of those. do Do you know any, do you know any haikus in Japanese? Uh, no, actually. Okay. I don't. Lucky for us, because we're supposed to wrap this up. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, okay. What shall we do as our parting thing? I don't know. Uh, I want you to show, to bring, bring some of your, bring some of your goodness. What, what was your, now you, cause I remember you with your, your violin in, in right. high school. When yep. you left high school, I'm going to, I'm going to turn the interview around a little bit here. <laughs> when you left high school, how did you get? from that to this well i was always into star trek so i mean ever since third grade well i my bow got stuck on one of the pins on my collar um so i was always into star trek ever since from third grade so that's why i've got star trek stuff happening oh yeah i i'm loving it (laughs) and then my so my youtube channel is part that and then also i'm really into classical music yeah um so there's quite there's a quite a few videos on my channel that are classical music, a fair number of my own compositions because I like to compose music too. Oh, awesome! I'm also into comedy, so there's some crazy stuff. And then, nice. Um, now I'm into doing interviews because I'm really interested. Well, for one thing, it's just like you said; like everyone has a story to tell. Yeah. So everyone. like, just, I mean, I could really interview anybody off the street mm-hmm. and just get them to feel comfortable yeah. and they'd have something really interesting to say Absolutely, that, that's worth listening to. That's worth, you know, watching on YouTube. Yeah. So that those are all the things. I mean, that's in a nutshell, what I'm about these days. I think it's great. I yeah, think it's, it's fantastic. Fun. You know, oral, oral histories have been one of the most, we've really focused a lot on doing oral histories. And I would say that 
most of our energy has been focused on doing oral histories because we've got a finite amount of time in which to interview these folks before they pass on. Yeah. So we've conducted over 300 oral history interviews of the people, the men and women that worked on the mission. Great. Which is pretty good. And, That's I, cool. and I would say that I want, I will actually say that the people that worked on the mission because gender was not, you know, necessarily a, a parameter or requirement, you know, yeah. a lot of, a lot of unique people um, on Viking uh, that don't fit into the normative gender roles and, and that yeah. should be, it's important to recognize, mm-hmm. you know, so even, you know, back in the day, there were folks that were bucking the rules, which is good. That's the, you know, it's a good thing in my opinion. Yeah. That's great. So, yeah. But well, that's, really, that's pretty, that's really cool that you've, you've started doing this. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. fun. It's, yeah. it's really fun. So, well, all right, let's wrap it up. So I'm going to okay. put in the link in the description. So we're going to put your Patreon right oh if you insist that'll be interesting why not and <laughs> okay. then we're gonna and then um is there a, there's a there's a website for there's your a website um, yeah there's a website a facebook and a um there's one exhibit that we've developed that's online that has documents such as the one behind me um cool. by the way i did not show you these things but there we we preserve the hardware as well as the oral history so oh interesting this is this is actually part of the thruster rockets that land the land wow. on the surface. Wow, it's this bigger than I thought. Well, this is gold-plated titanium. Yeah, this this mm. is just one thruster um, out of three that were on the lander. But we've got all kinds of all kinds of goodies that I take into classrooms. This is a oh, catalyst cool. chamber. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, I have all kinds of goodies that we. <laughs> Well, we we'll put some of the pictures up above us. Like what I do on the interviews is that I put some a strip of pictures above us. Yeah, we can look I, at while we're talking. I, so that's all. Yeah, I saw that. That was cool. So I'll I'll send you some. Okay, Rachel. Well, hey, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's take been. care. You too, and yeah. um, say hi to the Seattle Seattle streets. Oh yeah, you still are in Seattle, aren't you now? Um, yeah, I live up in, I live up in about in North of Seattle. Uh-huh. So, okay. and, um, I used to work in downtown Seattle before COVID. So, but for uh, the past two years, I've just been working out of my house, which is yeah. actually kind of like, yeah. So I'm with you there. Yeah. Well, if you're ever in town, let me know for sure. I will try yeah. to hook up, like just go out to coffee or something like that. Absolutely. When, we'll take you to see my lander. Oh, your lander is in Seattle. It's on loan to the Museum of Flight for now. Oh, yeah. You told me that. Yeah. Okay. That would be fun. For now. Well, it's still there. <laughs> and then if we both go together, then I can say, well, then you can say, well, this is my lander. I own it. And you can pull well, out yeah, your they little know. badge. <laughs> they know me pretty well around there. <laughs> okay. So they'll already be saying, oh, oh Miss Tillman, come here, come here, please. No, you know? no, not in that way. So you're like I'm the queen of England. No, not, not at all. We don't get the deferential treatment or anything like that. <laughs> but okay. I do go in to check on it periodically and make sure it's in good condition. So when I go up, I will give you a jingle. Very good. Sounds cool. great. All, all right. right. Take great care. Great to talk to you. You too. All we'll right. See you.
fantastic creations emerging spontaneously from the space of life. For the benefit of all beings everywhere, we gotta change.